This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Hello and welcome to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. I'm Rob Brown. And they say I'm Martin Bissett. And in the news this week, we look at the shortfall of technical expertise in accounting. Do people really know what tech they need? Have they really got the people they need to operate the tech? We look into a report on that one. And I do a special interview with Matt Baldwin to talk about thought leadership in accounting. And here's what works. We look at writing the proposal document. What is going to tip the scale in your favor when a client or prospect is going to decide whether to spend money with you? And then we have an interview with Chris Argent of Generation CFO, and we're comparing accountants and CFOs looking at how they meet business demands. They've got a lot more in common than you think. In our bonus, the price is right. We look at the challenge of working with startups. How do you price it? What happens when the business grows quickly? How do you set expectations? We explore in detail here. Enjoy all of this week's episodes. Thank you for listening, watching, and sharing. And thank you to our special sponsors, Iris Software. Martin, you saw a great video just recently from Iris, didn't you? Yeah, well, I think people don't understand about Iris is they were ahead of the game for MTD phase one because they were the first software vendor to be listed as approved by the HMRC for MTD filing. And guess what? They're fully prepared for the next. So they've got an MTD webinar on demand that you can catch up with at any time. Rob, where did they go to to see this? It's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. That stands for making tax digital for our international listeners and there's some great stuff there that you need to know to guide you through the whole Making Tax Digital initiative. So iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. Right, Martin? That's right. So wherever you are in your journey, Iris know that they have the knowledge and tools to help you in the next steps. That's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. So we come to our new section, which is where we invite Martin Bissett to cast his eyes over what's happening in the accounting and fintech world, whether it's happened recently or it took place over the last few months. And we've just allowed the story to percolate and reflect on the impact of it. Martin, what's caught your eye this week? Well, as you can imagine, Rob, the accounting news field is a fast-paced place. <laughs> Are you being sarcastic, my friend? We're not at all. Where things change every every decade, I would say. <laughs> really? There's something new. Something new every time. Right. One, one thing that caught my eye here is an article published in Accountancy Age, and it's a uh, survey. And I always like I always like a survey, especially when the sample size is large, because it tells us what's going on on a macro level. Hmm. Um, by the Institute of Financial Accountants, the IFA, whom uh, are international, uh, but our UK listeners and our Australian listeners will be particularly familiar with that organisation, as that's their two uh, areas. The headline's misleading. Uh, it says, accounting industry sees shortfall in tech expertise. Of course, it's not an accounting industry. We have, to, we have to make this correction a number of times on the show. We're the accounting industry. So, dear listener, if you're selling to accountants and through accountants and for accountants, you are indeed the accounting industry. If you are, as most of our audience is, a practitioner or in an accounting firm where you are practicing your professional qualification, sometimes your chartered, uh, uh, Royal Charter Mark qualification, then it is a profession, not an industry. So calling it the accounting industry when you're referring to the profession is always wrong. And now that I've corrected that. And Martin, I had a discussion yesterday with Randy Crabtree, uh, host of the Unique CPA podcast, very successful mm. show. He's been on our show. We're going to appear on his. And uh, we were talking about this industry thing. Obviously, he's based over there in the U.S., and he said, I've been calling it an industry for years and nobody's corrected me. And I told him the thinking behind why accountants themselves 
like to be considered the same as lawyers and doctors because they've earned the right. They've got letters after the name. They've been for a lot of academic hoops and professional qualifications. And we are the industry that serves them. Ultimately, if we were to be really crude about it, the professionals are white collar and the industry that serves them is blue collar. But I, I might be upsetting some people there, but we take the point. Uh, generally, the industry is no collar. They're all wearing t-shirts. Yes. Um, so generally, no collar at all. But yes, the Accounting Influencers podcast, where you're wrong and we're happy to correct you. So <laughs> the news item goes like this. The IFA asked accountants aged 41 and under, so generally not managing partners, about the changing role of the profession, there we go, in order to learn about the challenges presented by new technologies and identify any skills and training gaps, any. So on the straightaway up, you know, so many partners don't care about accountants 41 and under because they just want to protect their, their pension pot for when they leave, whereas switched on partners think, yeah, what is the next 10 years, 20 years looking like? I won't read the whole article, obviously, but I'll pick out the main points. Automation of accounting tasks by artificial intelligence and the increased use of cloud-based accounting tools by clients were the technologies that were recognized as potentially having the most significant impact on the future of accounting. We've been saying this for a very long time, that major fintechs are going straight to the clients so that the clients influence the accountants on what software they must support. And that increased automation takes out the bottom rung of what you used to get paid for every year for doing. So I agree completely with the findings of these reports. It then has certain sections, I think four in total. The first one says, the game-changing potential of AI. Now, by that, guys, they mean artificial intelligence, not accounting influencers. AI, it says, is one aspect of new technology, which is without doubt set to transform accounting operations, delivering efficiencies, reducing errors, and optimizing workflows while assisting professionals with real-time decision-making based on insights driven by accounting data. It's that last one, guys, that I want you to take a look at. While assisting professionals, that's you, with real-time decision-making, that's your clients, based on insights driven by accounting data. That's what we know as advisory. Mm. Thankfully, this has been acknowledged in a report, finally, which is great. Next section says bridging the skills gap. The knowledge gap has been laid bare by IFA's survey with 75% of respondents, Rob, saying that they had, at best, some knowledge of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. 75% of all respondents. Now, bear in mind that at the Digital Accounting Forum in 2018, or maybe 19, somebody from, I think, Grant Thornton reported that their biggest challenge right now was taking their clients' questions on how to pay their staff, their client staff in, in Bitcoin. And Martin, how can you be the trusted advisor if you don't have answers or at least can signpost and access to the right answers with your network of suppliers, advisors, providers, experts on this? Because the clients need to know this stuff. That's easy. You can't be. So the next section of this report said value added and specialist services. Members felt that offering a broader strategic, that offering broader strategic services in addition to technical accountancy skills was the most needed action to address. It's 1974 again, Rob. You know, <laughs> here we are. I think we might perhaps, should we, maybe should, should we go beyond compliance? Should we? Should, mm, not sure. I am a 25-year veteran of this profession. This was the talking point when I came in. I know it's been a talking point since at least the 1930s. So it, that, that's kind of depressing. You know, we, we recognize the need and we're going to promptly do nothing about it. And the next year, we're going to recognize the need in the next study as well. So that was an eye-opener for us. And then two more, industry trends and opportunities. New technology is drastically changing the workplace. No kidding. As well as influencing client expectations. That one's important. 
as well as influencing client expectations. We're not being led by you anymore. We're leading you, dear accountant. The shift to digital transformation has been accelerated by the pandemic and Brexit has highlighted an appetite for education in the context of the global business landscape, meaning things are tougher than they used to be. So right now, increasingly, it is now, according to this report, it is now the client telling the accountant what they have to do, not the accountant telling the client what it is they're going to do. And that's a shift. So what is the impact of the news here, Matt? It's okay reporting on the news, and we know the listeners can get their news anywhere, but there is an mm. overload. So what we do here on the Accounting Influencers podcast is sift through the key bits for them, but we make it relevant in a way that says to them, here's what you need to take notice of, and here's what you need to do. So what's the message? So in the famous words of Richard Bruin, what do I do now and what do I do next? So what I do now, if you're listening to this, is you recognize that your firm has two futures, one surviving and one thriving. And you can pick each, anyone you want. But being aware of these issues, again, for yet another year, is going to ensure your survival because you'll do enough to stay, to stay ahead above water. It will not help your business thrive. What you do next is you go, okay, let's take this as being authoritative as a document. Let's take this report as being accurate. What is the very first thing I do in my practice? Do I decide on a pricing strategy? Do I change the messaging on the website? Do I look at what I'm recruiting and change the, the criteria of who I'm recruiting? Do I look at my practice technology and realize that none of us know what we're doing with it and work on that first? But what you do now is you listen to what we've got to say here. And what you do next is decide the first thing that you're going to address in your practice to make it thrive, not survive. And from a firm level to an individual level, accountants listening that want to keep their hands on the steering wheel of their own career need to inoculate themselves against obsolescence, irrelevancy. They need to get ahead of the game with these skills gaps, with the kind of stuff clients are telling them that they need to know so that they accelerate their own career and create the best possible opportunities for themselves, selfishly speaking. What I noticed, Rob, is the number of tech companies that are increasingly luring accountants away from practice. Okay because they need qualified accountants to show them the way. You know, how does an accountant do this? How does an accounting firm do that? What is the process? What is the workflow? And accountants are pleased to be lured away because they're going nowhere where they are. Well, that is the news. We employ you to do something which is usually better than doing nothing. But don't just take this to make your brain bigger. Use it to make yourself better. And that's what we're all about here with the Accounting Influences Podcast. Improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. Really fly. The Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And welcome to our expert interview today. I'm thrilled to have with me an old friend, Matt Baldwin. Hello, sir. Hello. Hello, Rob. Matt, for people that haven't come across you, tell us what you do and what you're so passionate about. I'm a journalist by background, but for the last 25 years, I've worked with professional services firms, creating PR programs, content programs, and thought leadership campaigns. A couple of things I get really excited about. I love helping professionals write better content, more engaging content for their clients. But outside of work as well, I, I waste my time, as my wife says, with an old Triumph Herald car and a few sheep and chickens. <laughs> Why do accountants need good content? It's absolutely critical and fundamental. I mean, they're dealing quite often with a complex subject matter 
And clients come in all different shapes and sizes. They could be people like you and me, Rob. They could be very sophisticated, grown-up companies, or those just starting building a business. So being able to communicate clearly is essential. And a lot of the time, that communication, particularly over the last two years or so, has been through the written medium. So being able to write well, I think, is absolutely fundamental to what they do. We're going to dip into thought leadership today to drive business development. We'll go into terms in a moment. But just generally, Matt, what kind of shape do you feel the account Accountancy profession is in right now. We've been through a lot, haven't we? Absolutely. It's a profession that has definitely been through an awful lot, but it's also a profession that's proved its worth, I think. Um, It has been so important to businesses and private individuals as they've gone through what has been one of the most unsettling and uncertain periods in a generation, um, if not generations. And and it's still here. I mean, just the events in Eastern Europe and in Russia over the last two weeks have just shown that that uncertainty still remains. And accountants are quite often the first port of call for businesses um, to help guide them through these uncertain periods. And with what you do at Coast Communications, you deal with the the media and the PR side of accounting firms. You also do a lot of thought leadership with them to position them as the firm of choice, experts in their field. So let's start by looking to the Matt Baldwin Dictionary of Life and Business and coming up with a definition for thought leadership, because it could mean so many things. It can do. And it is one of those uh, phrases, words that is overused. Yes. Like influencer. It is. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the way we um, view thought leadership is it's it's a marketing tool that drives business development activity at its most basic. Um, It can be research led, but not always. And I'm sure we'll touch on that a little bit later on uh, in the show. The the key thing with thought leadership is it's a way for a firm to really shift the dial in its thinking and its clients thinking forward. It's to move that conversation on from the day to day to the issues and challenges that a business might be facing at some point in the future. It's sort of the kind of program that should shape future decision making rather than reflecting on what has happened in the past. It will invariably be accompanied by a report, an event, a PR push, and and those are good things. But really, it's there to drive meaningful conversations with clients and and hopefully develop and win new business. Defining business development is an important thing as well, because accountants as a breed, they're not comfortable with the word selling. They're not comfortable with that angle to their role where they have to bring in new business. They're often quite happy just doing the work. So there is an end point to this, isn't there, in business development? Just define that for us in your mind. Well, I think, um, I mean, this is where thought leadership can really help. It sort of makes that selling easier by not selling. It's there as a conversation starter with clients. And actually, it's getting over that first hurdle of how do you start a conversation with a prospective client or an existing client you want more work from can be the biggest hurdle to get over. And thought leadership can really help individuals do that. It is at its heart selling, but actually in a very soft and a way that I think many professionals find so much easier. It does make so much sense. Can you give us some examples of what you mean? There are three I thought that I could share with you that we've been involved in, but at very different points of the profession. So uh, one is um, KPMG are in the middle of a phenomenal thought leadership program looking at global philanthropy. And you can find that on their website if you wanted to explore that further. But it's, um, it's a global campaign. It's looking at how 
philanthropists are using their capital, their wealth to change communities, to change um, society. It's a sort of disruptive philanthropy, I guess, um, you could call it. At a, at a slightly at the other end of the scale, there's a, a fantastic piece of research that uh, the accountants Hilia Hopkins create every year. Um, Hilia Hopkins, for those of you who don't know, they're a firm along the M4 corridor, M40 corridor rather. And every year for the last decade, they've done a survey of golf clubs and looking at the financial health of golf clubs, but looking at the challenges that clubs will be facing over the next uh, two to three years. And it's become the go-to piece of research for golf clubs. And then sort of in the middle, Creston Reed, one of the uh, larger members of the Creston International Network in London and the Southeast, they've just embarked on a campaign called Shaping Your Future. Um, and it's sort of in recognition of coming out of post-COVID. And their campaign is looking at a, a programme of activity over 18 months. So it's quite an ambitious programme with an exceptionally long tail. And again, we can explore, maybe touch on some of those points a little bit later on. So they're three very different campaigns in size, in scale and in focus. That maybe gives a little bit of a hint of what you can achieve with thought leadership. They're great examples. And what strikes me of those is that all three firms are trying to dictate the conversation to own the narrative, to say this is important and here is why. And ultimately, here's what we're doing about it, which is why you should talk to us. Absolutely. They want to be that authoritative voice on those issues, on those concerns for those clients. So how are accounting firms using thought leadership? You've given some examples there, but there must be some general strategies around this. I think the, the landscape of the last two years, the COVID landscape, has really changed the way firms are looking at thought leadership. I mean, if you cast your mind back, a lot of marketing activity would have been event-led activity, that opportunity to go out, spend time with your clients and get to understand them. That changed, I mean, pretty much overnight. And what we found is accountancy firms are adopting much more content-led marketing programs to create those conversations that perhaps were happening um, pre-COVID. And thought leadership is one of those ways that they are using content to really own the space and, and develop and push those conversations. These campaigns, they, they're either focusing on the very, very big issues that are facing society today, like the future of work, the continuing impact of maybe technology, the ESG agenda, but right down to the very focused sort of issues that groups of clients are basing. So you'll see campaigns emerging that focus very much on one particular industry group. I mean, Hilia Hopkins and the Golf Club Survey um, is a really good example there. But what they all have in common, these campaigns, is that they are there to start a conversation with clients. Yes, profile is important. Yes, the events online are important. But the primary driver is and should be to start those meaningful conversations. If a firm is thinking of getting into thought leadership, driving more content, there's presumably a, a process that you should go through. What should we write about? What are our areas of expertise? How do we find the right themes for our thought leadership programs? It's the million dollar question. <laughs> we always um, suggest that firms look at, start with three areas. First is the audience. Who is it you want to reach with this campaign? Is it all clients? Is it a group of clients? Is it private individuals? Whatever that might be. The next bit, what is it you're trying to sell? For what are the service lines or the sector lines you're trying to push? And then the third bit is, where do we have a point of view? Do we feel passionate about a particular issue, a particular point? And actually, if you have those as three circles in a Venn diagram, if you find that 
bit where they all interlink in the middle. That is your sweet spot for finding the right theme. Now, um, we help firms do that. I mean, as you can imagine, Rob, um, we run these ideas labs. It's sort of a short interactive sort of creative process where we get partners, other uh, members of the firm, really thinking hard about those questions and then trying to translate the answers into what a content and thought leadership program might look like. Start with your audience, look at what you're trying to sell, and then thirdly, your point of view. That makes so much sense. But as you say, partners, individuals, even marketing departments can get so close to what they do, they can't see objectively what is needed in a thought leadership program. Absolutely. And we can help them do that. But it's actually not us delivering a thought leadership program, Rob. It's it's us facilitating the firm, its partners, its marketing uh, team to come up with their own campaign, something that's special, unique to them. Talk to us about the importance of research, because I see weak thought leadership in firms just commenting on what's going on or sharing a government link saying this is important, but that's not thought leadership. Really good thought leadership programs are underpinned by research. There are plenty of ways you can approach that. Some of our firms, they will buy in data from market research agencies, and there are now panels that you can buy into everything from sort of owner-managed businesses with a turnover of under 25 million. There are even panels where you can get OAPs who own dogs and, and really narrow down your survey research. I, I, I haven't been brave enough to suggest to any accountancy firm they survey uh, over 65s with dogs, but it may may well be missing a trick there. The data is there, Matt, though, isn't it? The data is there. So the, you can buy in this research. You develop your questions with a market research agency, and they will go out and guarantee the, the sample size you want. The difficulty there is it's an anonymous sample. You can't actually interact with that group after the research. Firms also turn to their clients as well, and that's a phenomenal way. You've got a ready-made group there. But what we find is it can be really difficult for firms to get the numbers, the kind of sample size back to make the research worthwhile. But if, if a firm is confident it can do that, then absolutely, what a fantastic resource at their fingertips. I think one of the ones that I find most interesting, though, is actually the really deep dive, the in-depth interviews. Um, so you, you've landed at your subject and you and you think, um, let's spend an hour with Rob really getting under the skin of your business, your issues around that particular theme. And you take these deep dive interviews and it needs a bit of heavyweight crunching of, of what you're being told. But the insights it gives you can create some fantastic content, some fantastic reports. But then also you've got that natural follow up with those that you interview. It can be time consuming, but you don't need to go to very large sample sizes sort of 15, 20 people is a perfectly valid group of individuals to do deep dive interviews with. Whatever approach you take, you've got to road test your questions, your hypotheses of what it is you're trying to find, prove or disprove. And, and clients, in my experience, are really happy for you to run those surveys, run those questions by a small group of clients before you invest that time and effort into. But whatever approach you take, Rob, you've got to really understand what it is you want to try and find. What is it you are trying to get out of that research? Otherwise, you'll end up wasting time and money. And the outputs of this. We do surveys, we create big reports, we put on an event, we push it with PR, we create PDF documents, infographics. There's presumably some very big decisions to be made on what do we do with what we create? 
Yeah, there's a, a huge debate at the moment. Is the big heavyweight report dead? Do people really want it? And I think the way we consume information is changing, and there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, now, I work with a, a partner organization called Meridian West, and we did a quite a big, chunky piece of research in the middle of lockdown on how senior C-suite execs consume the information that they're sent to them by lawyers and accountants. And, and without the most in-demand content is short, snappy insights. Our inboxes, my inbox, yours, I'm sure, um, are full of content and, and things they need to act on. So if you can give them something really short, really snappy that they can act on, perfect. What they do want, however, though, our research told them, is they still want that heavyweight report behind those shorter pieces. If they want more information, they want to be able to go and access it. And I guess the report just legitimises your claims and everything that you're saying and undermines the stats so that people can check it out if they want to. That makes sense. What about the claim, Matt, that yeah, we can create some IP or some thought leadership, put it in a webinar, but it's it's old very quickly. It's yesterday's newspapers. It's, it's not fit for purpose anymore because people are on to the next webinar and the next piece of thought leadership. Are there ways firms can extend the, the life of thought leadership? Absolutely. And I think if you can come up with a campaign that, that can run for months, um, if not longer, then you're onto a real winner. I mean, a classic example is PwC's CEO Pulse survey. I mean, it's done four times a year and has been done for, for nearly a decade, maybe perhaps even longer. Uh, another is Deloitte's annual crane survey, which I think is astonishingly in its 25th year. But there are ways that firms can extend the life of a campaign. I mean, one of the things we could suggest is maybe shorter Pulse surveys that you revisit every few months. So you're sort of creating sort of a benchmark of your original survey findings against how events are changing. Some of the really clever things we're seeing there, Rob, I mean, and these do cost a little bit of money, is, is creating benchmarks. So you're regularly surveying businesses, but allowing them to, to compare their own findings against their peers. Um, and there's some really clever technology out there that allows you to create dashboards that a, a business can log into and see how they compare to their peers. And it allows them to go back time and time again as the data is updated. And actually that sort of personalized thought leadership is a, is a real holy grail for firms that can achieve that. But on a more modest budget, it's just think about the content ideas and themes that will come out of your original piece of research. I mean, to give you an example, if your survey is 20 questions, you do your report based on that. Well, each question could merit its own piece of writing, uh, further explanation, further exploration a little bit down the line. So you can keep a program going over quite an extended period of time. The other thing as well to do is think about how you can cut and dice your data. If you're a, a national firm or a firm with a large regional footprint, look at maybe how it might work for just one particular county or region within your, your space or one industry sector or one group of clients. And actually, again, another really powerful tool is going to a client and saying, look, can we give you a personal briefing? on what our research means for your business. So there are many things that you can do over and above that event report PR sort of thought leadership model. And I'm really glad you made the distinction there between an event, a one-off and a campaign, because anybody can put out a blog post or an article or even a video, any firm can do that, but it's not necessarily part of an overall strategy or a theme or a topic you want to come to grips with or an area that you really want to own the narrative on, as we said. So it's thinking more strategically about what you put out, isn't it? It is, it is. And there is that 
time and place, um, of course, for those technical updates. I mean, if there's a VAT tribunal decision or change in government policy, then there is a need to tell clients what this means for their business. But that's sort of the day-to-day housekeeping kind of programs. The thought leadership really is that looking beyond the day-to-day and looking at what is going to happen tomorrow and in the years to come. And whose job is thought leadership, Matt? Do you feel... I'm thinking how this gets sold internally, that internal engagement. Are the marketing department doing it? Are the partners now expected to write blogs and do research? Whose job is it? It's a really good question. And um, one of the challenges we find is if thought leadership is owned entirely by the marketing department, it can be very hard to get partners to buy into it. They think it's just a a marketing exercise. Whereas we would always encourage partners to, uh, and and other fee earners, and, and I hate the phrase fee earner, but I can never find a better one, getting them involved from day one, getting them involved in deciding what that idea is, what the how the research is going to look, how that research is going to be used and what success looks like. And for the marketing department, yes, they're going to be there to drive the research, create the reports, create the events, the blogs, the PR programs. But actually, the the marketing team should also be there to provide assets for their colleagues to help them have those discussions with clients. That could be creating a series of LinkedIn posts that individuals can share. It could be suggesting to a client, let's do a a one client briefing around our research. So it's it has to be a collaborative effort, not just owned by the marketing team. I'm thinking of examples of thought leadership that you put out yourself. You've got this professionals online magazine, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the magazine um, is there very much to help uh, marketing and business development teams in accounting firms and law firms just celebrate some of the amazing things they do. And uh, I think I've worked with marketing teams for 20 plus years. I was a marketing director of a law firm. You're often behind the scenes. You're facilitating the marketing for your colleagues, not the visible marketing team that you might be in a, a B2B organization or a, a consumer company. So it's it's there just to help celebrate what these guys do week in, week out. And they do some amazing stuff, Rob. Really, really do. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And how can firms measure the return on investment, the, the outcomes, the results of thought leadership campaigns? Uh, it's a tough one to crack. It really is. And I think you've got to look at a number of measures and start looking at what those success measures are going to be right from day one. There's no point doing a campaign and then thinking, how are we going to measure it? Because those measures won't be built in. But you've got to have the traditional measures of bums on seats at an event, of how many downloads of a report and social media hits, press cuttings, all that kind of stuff. But I think where it gets really interesting is start to capture some of the anecdotal feedback that you'll get from walking the floors, talking to your colleagues. If an individual says, you'll never guess the kind of conversation we just had with Rob, he saw our report and shared it internally. That's fantastic to capture and share with your firm. If you can track sort of inquiries as well, and that is really tough for a lot of firms, then that is also gold dust when you go back as a marketing team to your firm saying, this is what we've achieved. Um, But the challenge there is those inquiries will tend to come into an individual partner, individual accountant, not to a central place. So it is tough to capture. Look at the anecdotal feedback, spend time talking to your colleagues about how they used and the reaction they got from thought leadership. What advice would you give to the accountants listening who get everything that you're saying, maybe they've got to sell it to the marketing department, maybe they've got to sell it upwards to the partners, but they're hungry to put out great content. What are steps for them to gain the buy-in that they need? Talk to their marketing team. I think marketing teams are 
pretty good um, in most firms that I've come across. And most accountants talk to the marketing department and say, do me this brochure or can we sponsor this event? This is a better kind of conversation you're talking about, isn't it? It is. And marketing teams love those conversations. I mean, yes, they know they've got to do the events. They've got to do the sponsorships and the brochures. But actually, marketing teams really want to get their hands dirty and spend time with their colleagues, helping them really understand and develop the kinds of conversations they want to have. So go to your marketing team, explain what you want to do, explain that you need their help to achieve this. And I would be very, very surprised if most marketing teams wouldn't welcome you with open arms. Well, we'll definitely get you on the show again and talk about how individuals themselves can become thought leaders and their roles in firms as being that obvious expert. But for the moment, Matt Baldwin, that's been superb. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. Now it's time for Here's What Works. And Martin, you and I share ideas that have worked throughout our consulting and training careers looking after accountants for many, many years. There's a lot of bull out there. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of hot air. There's a lot of claims and promises made to help accountants do what they do. But in Here's What Works, we focus literally on what works. What are we looking at today? Proposal documents today, Rob. And when we say what works, guys, not what worked once for one firm in one place (laughs) ever, which is often the basis of people's claims, but what has worked year in, year out, year in, year out, regardless of size of firm, regardless of size of prospect, regardless of size of clients or anything like that. And we find that proposal documents or quotes, as you would call them, dear listener, are often exceptionally poor and do not make the case for why a business owner should break the loyalty barrier with their existing firm and move across to you guys. So I remember the worst ever proposal that I saw, and it was actually one that was sent to me. When I started my business many, many years ago, I had a local firm come to see me and it was the managing partner who came to see me, which I was quite shocked at given that I was a startup. He spent maybe 20 minutes with me. And then within maybe two hours of him leaving, he then sent me an email, which was addressed uh, in the opening line. It said, Dear Martian, (laughs) thank you very much for the meeting. It had a little bullet point section that said, here are the things we're going to do for you. And then it had another sentence that said, and we want eight grand for it. Some people might listening up and going, yeah, what's the problem with that? (laughs) So first of all, the 20 minutes that he spent with me was all about him and his firm. Didn't once ask me a question about the business. Secondly, he had decided what I needed. So those bullet points was his recommendation, but not based on any diagnosis or analysis. He wanted eight grand. I'm not quite sure what world he was living in at the time when he priced that or whether he had been experimenting with marijuana prior to coming to see me. But nevertheless, eight grand it was. And of course, it may well have been the marijuana because I was a Martian to him. Now, obviously, that's a comical bad example, but it is a real example. And I can tell you that I am a part of um, teams that have put together literal hundreds, possible thousands of proposal documents over the years. So I know what works. I want to outline for everybody the five uh, sections, component parts, ingredients of a proposal that acts as a, what they used to call in sales, as a silent salesperson. Just to tee this up, Martin, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to what five you've got to share. In the whole sales process, are proposals still relevant today? Is that the way it works? I think at any any serious level, yes, it is. I think there still needs to be something in paper that justifies, or digitally, that justifies the investment that you're asking the client to make. There needs to be a creation of empathy that allows the client to understand why they're making this change, because this change isn't easy for them, even if they're unhappy. 
with their current accountants. In more cases than not, they've been with them a long time and they are dreading letting that accountant know that they're leaving. So there's an awful lot of comfort and encouragement required to make that change. So the scenario is an accountant has gone to see a prospect, probably with, with another firm right now. It could be a referral, it could be an inbound inquiry, a lead, whatever. And they've had that first meeting, whether that's online or face-to-face, and the client, potential client has said, yes, we're interested, give us a proposal. We're at that point now, and you're going to give us five things that work for what the accountant does with that proposal. Yeah, normally too many firms write a page and a half of incoherent rambling. What I want you to do is to have five structured sections, guys. It goes like this. Number one, believe it or not, is the introduction. And in the introduction, the point of this is not to say we were established in 1838 and all of our original partners are still with us, not to tell a story of your firm, but to tell the story of what your firm has gone through as it relates to that client that you're talking to. So is that client going through growing pains? Talk about the time when your firm went through growing pains. Is that firm on the crest of huge expansion? Talk about the time when your firm grew at its highest rate. So not to intro the firm with the basic website copy that you've copy and paste, but to say, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. And just like you, we all know what it, what it feels like to be in this situation because... So rather than telling the story of where your firm came from and how you were established and you've got a specialist tax department and parking on site and the stuff that no one cares about, instead, talk about the relatability between what that business is going through right now and what you've been through previously so that you can demonstrate to them that you're the experts. You've been there, you've tackled it, you know how to overcome it, and you'll overcome it for them as well. And that's section number one, one page long maximum. Section number two, one page long maximum, is the overview. So you've had your meeting with the client now, and if you didn't make a complete mess of it, you will know what their motivations are. You will know what's wrong with the current accountants. You will know what they're trying to achieve. You will know what their roadblocks are, and you will know why you've been asked to put a proposal in there. So tell them, regurgitate the meeting. Remind them that you understand what they're going through. Remind them that you are as excited about their future as they are. Remind them that you have been listening very carefully to everything they've told you. Have the overview section be a reflection of that first meeting, a summation, not an explanation. That's section two. Section three, therefore, is the proposal itself. So now, having told them why we relate to them, having told them that we understood everything they wanted from us, we're now going to give them what it is they asked for. And we are going to put together the proposal. Now you've got two options here. You can either do it in the magic of three, gold, silver, bronze, beginner, intermediate, advanced, you know, different levels and, and say, there's three ways in which we can work with you. Take, take your pick, what's your favorite? Or if you are absolutely convinced that there is one best way of helping the client that beats all other ways, then you propose one solution. And you say, hand on heart, this is the best way of working together. And so you will outline the proposal. And you will spend very little time talking about the fact that you're gonna do the director's personal tax returns. And you'll spend a lot of time telling them what the director's personal tax returns being taken off their hands is gonna do for them. So that's the outcome and not the function, if you will. So the proposal is you proposing to them, this is how we propose to be superior to your existing accountant. And that's future-focused, isn't it, Martin? It's here's what's going to get done. It's here's the impact, the results of what we will do for you. Here's how it will affect you. That counts. Now, that can be as many pages as you want it to be, but let's keep it succinct. But that is the heart of the entire document, the proposal section itself. Your fourth section there 
what's known as the Management and Investment Summary, sometimes called the Executive Summary. That's where anybody could pick up this document and get the gist of what you've written in all those other sections in one page. So you summarize the entire document. Based on your instructions, we have been asked to propose for the following reasons, step one, step two, step three, and you would bullet point your way down that page, pointing out clearly what the advantages are to the business owner by making this change, including return of investment, if you can quantify that, including time savings, if you can quantify those, the, the absolute best you can do to make it a no-brainer for them to say yes to. So that's the management investment summary, and that's one page, and that's section four. In section five is the authorization and appendix. So if you're handling things properly, you will not send that proposal to them and let them skip straight to the price and have a coronary and then never call you again. You will deliver and present that proposal to them in front of them where you're controlling the process. By doing this, you're able to handle objections and resolve concerns as they are raised as you go through each section of the proposal. So then at the end of it, there's nothing left to do except then make a decision one way or the other, because that's what they're expecting to do. They're expecting to say yes or no at the end anyway. So when they say yes, what we want to do is to capitalize on that momentum, not let things go cold and have them sign authorization there and then, where that's a direct debit instruction. And you might say, well, it's an electronic part of our onboarding process, Martin, and we send everything to them. Well, good luck when you don't get a return email. Get them there and then. Stop messing about. So if you want to then add to that section and put in appendices of case studies that you have, stories that you have, relevant experience of your senior team to the specific engagements you're carrying out for them, so be it. That is extra material. It's not critical. It's nice to have. But that forms section five, the authorization and appendix. And then what you've got is a chunky document that is nevertheless in short parts, easy to digest, that won't bore the client, that makes a strong commercial case for why they should say yes to you rather than saying no. That wraps it all up nicely, Martin. What do firms get wrong quickly with proposals? I can think of two things right out of the gate. First is they don't personalize it. It's very boilerplate in its approach. Or the second is they go the other way and they wrap it up with great logos and they ring bind it and everything else. It looks absolutely fantastic, but doesn't have all the right information. Any other things firms get wrong? Both are excellent examples that you've given there, Rob, and are very common examples. Uh, the one I would add to that is exceptionally poor diagnosis in the first meeting. People struggle to write proposal documents in the format that I've just prescribed because they didn't get that information in the first meeting because they weren't listening and weren't particularly interested in the first place. Very poor at collating information, very poor at putting themselves in the client's shoes and go, how do I feel in this situation if this was me? Or how did I feel when it was me? And the more investigation that you do in that first meeting, the more you shut up and just ask questions and listen to the answers, the more the prospect will tell you what it is that's going to sway them in your favor. The more they'll tell you what it is they want to buy, the easier your job becomes, the less you talk. Sounds counterintuitive, but it's proven to be true. Brilliant, Martin. That is what works with proposals. For some of you, we apologize. This is very basic to you, but we... We understand that not everybody gets this right. And there are huge opportunities here for you to bring in your business. If you just take a little bit of care with the way you lay out the promises you're making in what is a very delicate negotiation situation, isn't it, Martin? There's a lot at stake. There's a lot of emotions in switching providers and accountants and advisors. So uh, with a lot at stake, it warrants a little bit of attention. That's right. And you find that little bit of attention pays you back with an average lifetime um, of a client of being seven to 10 years in accounting. That pays you back seven to 10 times over. 
And that is what works with writing a proposal. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast, cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights, and wisdom from the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And a big shout out to one of our newest commercial partners here on the podcast, it's Practice Ignition. Martin, how would you explain what those guys do? Businesses such as accounting and bookkeeping firms use Practice Ignition to one, help them grow, two, be more efficient, and three, create win-win client relationships. There are nearly 5,000 accounting and professional services firms around the world who use Practice Ignition, and they do so to win new business with impressive digital proposals, they engage clients with a clear scope of work, and get paid on time by automating payment collection. PI integrates with the leading business apps such as Gusto, QuickBooks, Xero, Zapier, and it does so to automate time-consuming tasks. That means less admin and more time for clients, Rob. We've got a special offer from our PI partners. Use the code AIR21 to receive 25% off all plans for your first six months. But that's 25% off with the code AIR21. And the link is info.ignitionapp.com forward slash AIP for accounting influencers. Practice Ignition, it's time to ignite your practice. Hi, welcome to our special guest interview for this week, and I'm thrilled to have with me today an old friend. It's Chris Argent from Generation CFO. Chris, welcome. Good afternoon, Rob. Nice to be here. Chris, for people that haven't come across you and the great stuff that you do, what is it that you're all about? So we are all about promoting future and current CFOs um, to be leaders of sustainable, high-performing businesses. You said that before, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, many a time. Yeah, and we do that through a, a community, and we do that with technology in mind. So we've kind of got that tech side. How long have you been going? Well, there are two answers to that. The first one is three years, pretty much, since we've incorporated the company. But actually, we started out as a LinkedIn group about 13 years ago. You know, you know a lot about building communities. It started out as an idea and a group of people coming together and that grew and grew and grew. And now there's 70 odd thousand on a LinkedIn group and you've probably got a reach of about 100,000. Well, it's important to our listeners here that they're mostly accounting practitioners because in these challenging times, accountants are certainly wanting to, perhaps being asked to take on more of that financial advisory role, that maybe interim CFO or part-time FD or whatever you want to call it. So your world and my world collides, if you like. So just give us a little bit of flavor of where the CFO status is at right now. What's happening in your world? Yeah, you're right. I, I appreciate you more on the sort of accounting and, and practice side, but I work with a lot of accountants. I almost see it as a spectrum from, you know, that that space all the way through to, you know, growth company CFOs to the big enterprise CFOs. So we kind of have the same problems, but just in different size companies. I think the biggest thing for CFOs at the moment there's, is, the, is meeting business demand. You know, I think so many companies have just survived over the last couple of years, um, big and small. So many have had to go through significant change in how they're working, how they're operating. They might have realized that, you know, their, their teams are creaking a bit or their systems are creaking a bit, um, but they still have, and that's internal to, to them, but externally with the business and with their customers, they, you know, they still need to, to keep stepping up to the demand. So I think there's a massive pull on, on CFOs. And I imagine in the, the, the firm and the accounting side and the, the, 
the virtual CFO side, you know, there's lots of conversations that people might be having for the first time and being more of a business partner to those people rather than just, you know, provider of an accounts every now and again. And we know the role of an accountant is changing gradually. They've been that way for many, many years. Double entry bookkeeping has been ever thus. But we know there's downward compression and compliance fees. The bread and butter of what accountants have done over the years, that historical financial reporting, that's been largely devalued. The modern day business owner is very much looking forward. So accountants are wanting to become more trusted advisors and be more consultative and future looking in their approach. Has the role of a CFO changed much over the years? Yeah, I, th- I think they have you know, equal pressure. You know, They are being asked to step up into areas that they wouldn't necessarily look at before. As much as there's, you know, the commoditization of services in practice and in audit, you know, there's the commoditization of finance and accounting teams in industry. And, you know, people are expected to start, you know, removing transactional process heads that aren't necessarily seen as valuable, do a lot more on the business partnering side. I talk about that in the sort of the digital team and the nature of this digital team. And it doesn't matter, you know, I, I train people on the practice side as much as the the finance side around this sort of digital shift. And, you know, what we're seeing is that traditional triangle of lots of people doing stuff at the bottom and the leader at the top is changing. It's turning more into a diamond shape as we automate our processes, as we commoditize that transactional side to what we do, you know, whether it is AP or whether it's audit, it's all the same. And we're trying to sort of move up the curve a little bit. I think one of the biggest problems that I see in in practice at the moment is the debate around the pricing of that, because client services and audit have, you know, kind of relied on this charging by the hour model. But if we are generally being screwed down on price there and we're having to move into this advisory service or data analytics, as we might call it in an industry, you know, who's paying for it? How do we pay for it? And CFOs have a similar challenge in articulating their value. Accountants struggle with pricing. You're absolutely right. They struggle with pricing, positioning their services, pricing their services, and often delivering those advisory type consulting services. But it's all about value. You'll be mindful that price is only ever an objection in the absence of value. And the CFOs justify their place on the board or try and get buy-in for their messages, their strategies. It's all about credibility. It is all about getting your story right. There's similar things on both sides. There's there is a route for this kind of you know modern CFO to be the right hand man or woman of the CEO and stepping into that CEO role, but there that's the exception, not the norm. You've got to sell it though, haven't you? As well, you've got to sell that role and get the credibility for it. Yeah, absolutely, you, you've got to have a seat at the table. And what does it mean to have a seat at the table? Well. It means meeting the demands of your business. And if you're not meeting the demands of your business, then, you know, you might just be seen as the budget guy or the numbers guy and, and nothing else. You know, we need to be thinking about how we can truly partner with the business, how, how we can create impact with the business you know, how we can provide more information or analytics or whatever it is to support decision making and enable decisions rather than just saying, you know, where's your budget at? Or there's some variance analysis we need to be looking at. How can we almost open the opportunity, open the bank at the right time to invest in you know, opportunities and be agile in that, that approach rather than just saying, well, this is how we, we do it. We command control and, and we'll have a conversation next year. No, it's very, very different sort of landscape that we're operating in. And, and there are a huge number of examples out there of great CFOs, digital first CFOs, real innovators but I have to say in, in the mid-market and in the, in the majority of cases, 
there are a lot of people who are just sort of doing what they've always done. And they're getting challenged, not just from the business, but also from their own teams as Generation Z starts to come into the profession. And, you know, they don't really like the environment that they're seeing, not, not just because they're young, is that they're more tech savvy. They might have done computer science. They might be more aware of what a good application is or how things can be automated. And so why do I start at the bottom? You know, why am I doing this transactional processing or this audit review in this way? Can I please change it? So, yeah, there's factors top and bottom, I think, putting pressure on CFOs. So many great points coming out here, Chris. You write a lot, you speak a lot. You have the view that digital is now a core subject. It's not just something on the periphery, is it? No, not at all. And, you know, I've been on quite a journey with this myself. I don't expect anybody to sort of, you know, have a light bulb moment when I say these things. But my journey on this was born out of a, a real life situation when I was, you know, a financial controller in a business and I found a fraud And it ruined my life for a year as I did all the forensics and the legal work on it. And there was a point where I just felt like I was part of the problem, you know, poor process, low tech, low data, whatever it was. So I I moved into finance transformation and that's kind of where I am a good 15 years later. But it really planted a seed at that point that technology was core to the solution. But obviously, I've evolved my view since then. It's not just about the tools. It's very much about, you know, the people and the processes and you can get a lot of gains just by having the right sort of attitude towards, you know, solutioning and improving what you do before you even change your tools. But yeah, I, I work with accounting institutions, um, the ACCA and the AAT. I work with some of the leading, you know, L&D providers um, on this subject. And everybody is saying, we know it's relevant. We know it's almost like a, peer, a pillar of skills in its, in its own right. But how do we get there? And what I aim to do with my work is really show people that there's a pathway, potentially an alternative career within our our profession, Um, not being a data scientist, but within our profession and, you know, help, help people find that career path. And we're not asking accountants and CFOs to become geeks and nerds here. There's a lot to think about with the technology. But digital transformation is as much about the mindset and the approach as it is about the tech itself, presumably. Yeah, if I turn around to you and say, let's do some data analytics, you know, most people will say, okay, can I go and buy a tool? Can you put me on a Power BI course or a Tableau or a Click course? But actually, stop. What is it that you're trying to solve? You know, have you spoken to the business about what information they need? You know, we're very good at reporting the wrong information at the moment. There's a concept, obviously, around leading and lagging indicators, and we are very good at reporting lagging indicators, which means, you know, the fact it's the end of the line, it's the revenue, it's the cost, it's the sales. What we need to be doing is looking further down the process, you know, from a sales point of view, it could be how many sales meetings we're having, or, you know, from a profit point of view, it might be the quality of the product or whatever, something further down the metrics, the KPIs further down that process and report on that. That is a big conversation to agree those questions, to agree those metrics, to find the data relating to that before you even pick up a tool. One of the biggest epiphanies to most people when they do talk to me is that there's a huge non-technical data digital skill set out there. You know, they see as digital as all geeky and and techy and uh, I need to be a coder. Absolutely not. You know, we are analysts at heart. We're very good when it comes to problem solving. We're in a great position to go and ask all these questions of the business of our clients, even on audit, you know, assess how we actually operate now and then change, you know, maybe we'll need technical support 
at that point. But there's so much we can do before we even get to the tools. And you do need to understand the tools market when you get there, but it's certainly not the right place to start. Talk to us about Generation CFO. Who is in it and what do you do for them? It's a classic kind of passion project turned into the job. <laughs> yes. We started out as a LinkedIn group. I wanted to encourage a conversation around, you know, the things that I was seeing. I was fortunate enough to be in some leading companies doing finance transformation, data analytics, advanced analytics with data science and machine learning. And I could see where it was all going. And, you know, 13 years ago, it was a very lonely place trying to talk about this stuff. Now everyone wants a bit. So what I thought what I'd do is I'd try and get people together. And we had started to have community events, which then evolved into something a bit more formal. I started to share my sort of opinions via a blog and the blog turned into a website. And like I said, three years ago, I actually moved out of finance transformation and, you know, being a practitioner in analytics to to basically head of a community and founder of what Generation CFO is. And now it is a first a sort of community of people in industry, accounting and finance. They get together to discuss subjects. They obviously read a lot of educational content that we put out there as well. We also showcase people. We're really keen on promoting people who are, uh, who are making the shift, um, CFOs who are taking a bit of a risk and maybe bringing in new ways of working, new tools. But also younger people, we do something called team talks, which is about not calling out the generational gap, but sort of saying, hey, look, this is how we might do it. Or, you know, there are other ways of doing it. Or have you thought about, you know, this skill set? Did you even know that I did computer science as well as accounting, whatever it is? Um, but we're just really just trying to celebrate, you know, the finance community, give them the credit that they need while also promoting, you know, the future, which we believe is this third pillar of, of digital and data skills. Peer learning is so important, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It, you know, people, it, it's funny. Like we just launched a, a kind of like an information product called the CFO Tech 100, which was all about top tech in, in our space, in the industry space, not zero and that lot. It's very different. But we went out to ask people, you know, what, what do you want to get from these things? And we started talking about reviews and the like. And when we did our focus group, they sort of said, no, we don't trust reviews. We don't really get our information in that way. We get our information by coming to events like yours or to conferences, industry conferences, and talking to our peers. And it's there's that trust, right? We're all professionals trying to help each other out. I rarely sort of have the competitor conversation with anyone. It's like, oh, I can't talk to that CFO because they're in a competitor. It's just like, you know, and even Chatham House rules, I don't think it's even necessary with these sorts of conversations. Just share and learn and then go away and implement in private fine but you know the peer learning that you get when you come to these events is fantastic you know we make it social we make it informal you know i have a bit of a stock phrase which is change is structured learning and if change is structured peer learning then you know i'm all for encouraging that sort of peer learning experience because it will lead to the change you know we we have had so many examples of people coming away from our events with a new contact or with another tool in mind and going and implementing it. Yes. And we're doing something similar with the accounting influencer roundtable. We're much smaller than you and we don't run face-to-face -face events so much, but we are very much around sharing market intelligence, that peer over the garden wall. We do have some accounting practitioners, but it's mostly the influencers that sell to and through accountants in our group. But it's knowing what other people are doing and what's working for you and what isn't. And save me some time by breaking some myths for me and helping me unlearn some things and stop me going down dead ends that it's the wrong way to go, the wrong person to partner with. And 
that peer conversation is valuable. I'm now doing a completely different job. I'm sort of part media, part events kind of company. And I happen to be like the, the subject matter expert at the top of it. When I first started setting this thing up, I had no idea what I was doing. All honesty, it's out there. But I found a few, not mentors, but a few people that I would consider experts in this, more experienced than me in this. I had two or three phone calls with these people and I almost had my 10-year business plan. Yeah, and that's the power of finding the right people, not just anybody. And I do think that conferences can be massively overwhelming. Most people in accounting and finance get their information from their institutions or from those events. Conferences can be massively overwhelming. You know, the institutional information can be a little bit too high level. You know, you actually need to sort of operationalize this stuff. And that's when the peer learning comes in. It's like, well, what did you do? You know, how did you do it? What sort of person did you have in doing that? You know, how much effort did you put on the change side and the mindset as much as anything else? Oh, you're doing an automation project. Was it about the tool or was it about fixing the process before you automated? It's like all these conversations are so helpful and it, it's all cost of a you know, glass of wine. We just throw it on for you. Yeah. Obviously, events are a big part of it. How do you feel the event space is right now as you, you're more in that than ever before? Are events fit for purpose? We're in virtual, we're Going back a little bit to face-to-face, what's your take on the whole events thing, Chris? I think events are really important because they are, you know, in our research, they're number two in in terms of sort of information for for CFOs. So people will go to these places, you know, there's lots of sources of information out there, especially on new technology, new trends or the like. But really the conferences are number two. And I feel that they they need to change because they are, they're very overwhelming to some people. They are events company, profit motive led, you know, so of course you're going to try and get in as many sponsors and as many people as you can, as many faces as you can. But if we're talking about change equals structured learning, you know, how do you, how do you get anything out of a conference like that? You need to, you can do, but you have to be really prepared and you have to really narrow in on what you want. So I, I feel that events need to, you know, in our space, they need to change towards what people need, which is a more educational kind of offer. They need to be probably less about the tools because that's not where we're starting. I know there's a profit motive there with the big companies. Selling floor space with with vendors is is important, and we do the same, right? But really, the, the you know, we work hard with our vendors to sort of say, look, we want to fix a problem. It's not about the tool. It's not about a demo. We need to encourage people to change their mindset. So we'll have a a real partnership conversation with our sponsors and partners before we get to an event. And I I know I just encourage people to go to these events, whether they're online or offline with a plan so that they can actually take something constructive out of it. Because I just find, you know, the, the big ones are a little bit too big. I completely agree with you. Having a plan is primary. One of the biggest fall downs for events is that they brag about great networking opportunities and have great conversations. But what are accountants and CFOs like at networking? Not great. So you're stuck in a room next to somebody that you don't know. You don't really know how to talk to. Do you know there's a lot of rich conversations out there that you don't know how to have? The vendors are more than willing to talk to you and they'll talk to anyone about anything. But that networking part of it is overwhelming. And certainly the information thrown at accountants and CFOs at events is overwhelming. That's the kind of thing you're alluding to, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And look, some of these sort of shows are expos, you know, they're meant to be, you know, exhibitions, they're not trying to be an educational event, they're not trying to sort of get you to somewhere, it really is just, you know, build it and they'll come. 
you know, events need to change if there's going to be higher value for people. So maybe looking sustainably at an event, they need to change. Also the, the whole hybrid, you know, shift. We were always virtual, you know, long before the pandemic. And a lot of people came to us and says, how do you do this? You know, when, when it went into the pandemic, we've always been, been virtual. And then we do the, the sort of quarterly community meetups, um, both north and south of the UK now. And, so, you know, the real secret to networking with, with accountants? <laughs> Go on. A welcome drink. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's what we, we work hard at, at keeping it informal. People don't turn up just for the drink. They don't turn up just for the, you know, the night out. They turn up for the content and the learning and the networking. But what we try to do is give a bit of a balance of both. And we make sure that people have a drink. They have a chance to catch up beforehand. We then, you know, deliver the content and the learning. And then we probably have a good sort of hour and a half afterwards where people have that that chat. And, you know, I call, call it not working rather than networking. Try to connect the right people. So I pretty much personally know everyone that's turning up. Um, so you can sort of say, well, you're in retail, you're in retail, or you're using that system, you're using that system. It, it, it's sort of joining the dots as a as a sort of head of the community is, is super important to those events. I get that. And when you say events is number two, what's number one? Well, in terms of information, it's actually the accounting institutions. So most people still rely on, you know, the accounting institutions, magazines and websites and the, what they put on for them as members and students for their source of information. The problem I have, and I work very closely with them, providing them the information. The problem I have with that is that they are across so many different things. They are not just digital and technology and you know every industry out there and whether someone's gone into practice or not. All of the messaging is really high level. And, you know, we've worked with their professional insights teams and things like that to do research and they create great research. You know, I'm not knocking what they put out. It's just that it's so broad that it has to be fairly light. And what people need is, is the operationalization of it. We get the message, guys. We know we need to do this, but how do I do it? What sort of mastering level do I need? Not just, you know, the fanfare of, hey, let's do a you know, transformation program, it's, it's the nuts and bolts. So we've got to, you know, help people to sort of go to that level. And I really firmly believe as well, that this is our journey to go on. It's not about bringing in third party consultancies with massive teams and making a change or handing it out to somebody because you don't quite get it. I think it's really important that we go on this change because the profession is changing in this way. So if you don't go on that change and you hand it to someone else, then you're probably at some point going to be out of step with the, the profession. What's coming up for the CFO accounting world in your view? What needs to change in the profession? What needs to change? Um, Have a rant. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, I think CFOs have a very tough job. I think anyone working in accounting and finance firstly needs a pat on the back. Um, I think a lot of them have been behind the saving of a lot of companies over the last couple of years. And they're, they're very much the unsung heroes. You know, it was amazing how, you know, if all that silent work that we've done for so many years became most important um, in, during the pandemic. You know, never talked about scenario planning and cash flow so much in my life. You know, no one, no one cared before the pandemic. So I, first of all, pat people on the back for that. I think the real change that I'd, that I'd like to see is to stop looking backwards, you know, whether it is looking back at the profession to say that we've always done it this way, 
whether it's looking backwards in terms of the information we provide, we need to kind of look forward to the business, look forward to where our careers are heading, look forward in the, in the data and the numbers and provide information on that side. And that's going to mean a little bit of an identity shift. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. You know, there's plenty of people out there to help you on the journey, you included. So I think that the identity shift is something that I really hope people can work on and, and believe in uh, and, go, and go on that sort of new modern digital finance function journey, whatever it, whatever it is you want to call it. That's an encouraging call to arms. Chris Argent of Generation CFO, that's been great. Thanks so much for your time and your insights today. Thank you, Rob. Pleasure being here. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.